Turn with me or listen on as I read Acts chapter 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Luke, uh, Luke telling us this in verse 19 of chapter 11. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, uh, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Uh, then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church. And taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Uh, This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And let us pray together. Holy Father, once more, as we go through the book of Acts, we ask you that you would open up this message to us uh, by your Holy Spirit. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And neither are are of any effect except uh, as you add your blessing by your spirit, both the preaching and the hearing. So we pray, O God, give us your spirit, even as you gave Agabus and Barnabas and Saul and those early Christians. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at what uh, Luke is doing structurally, you would have to go back to chapter 8, verse 4, where he says, uh, following uh, the stoning of Stephen, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching uh, the word. And that's precisely uh, where he picks up in chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered... After the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch. We also find in chapter 11, verse 18, a kind of fitting prelude. Uh, The Jews were saying in Jerusalem at the report of Peter and the six other witnesses, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Uh, that's a kind of springboard to re-entering that, that picture of, uh, of the disciples in Jerusalem scattered abroad. They're spreading the word and, uh, and the gospel is going forth. What we could say is that we have here uh, the beginnings of the Gentile mission. It began in Cornelius' home, but that really was just a snapshot. Uh, th- that was just... One home, one group of people that were converted. 
that isn't really uh, the Gentile mission. That's that's uh, when we speak of the Gentile mission, we're talking about churches that were established in cities outside of Jerusalem. And that's really what we begin to see here, beginning with Antioch. Before that, of course, you had the conversion of Saul. Even before that, you had uh, the conversion of the Ethiopian. Again, another snapshot of this picture. Uh, you have the first group of Gentiles converted in Cornelius' home. And, and then skipping ahead, it's, it's in chapter 13, actually, that this whole endeavor, the Gentile mission, becomes the focus to the end. Uh, through the account, Luke's account of Paul's missionary journey. But as a kind of parenthesis here, again, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They were saying that in Jerusalem before this really begins in earnest. Between the conversion in Cornelius' home and the full-scale Gentile mission beginning in chapter 13, we have two events recorded, each of their own significance. Again, in a kind of bracketed way or parentheses. First, we have uh, here in chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, the gospel comes to Antioch. Not as a result of uh, the apostolic uh, ministry, simply as a result of the gospel spreading like leaven through the world. And then in chapter 12, we return to Jerusalem for the last time and we find Herod Agrippa persecuting the church. And that's the final chapter uh, of, uh, of the Peter Jerusalem narrative. I, I think I just put that too strongly. Uh, but uh, let's at least say we're nearing the end of that narrative at least. Uh, and the focus becomes something else. Well, let's follow the passage here and see what we see. The first thing we see is that good news spreads to Antioch. Some of them men who were from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Well, again, this is very similar to what we read in chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It's the same picture. It's the same idea. Only, again, it's the wrong word uh, here in the New King James. It would be better to translate chapter 8, verse 4 as evangelizing. As they went about, they were evangelizing. Remember, preaching is something that's, uh, it has an authorized official category. That's the kind of thing the apostles were doing. That's what Barnabas was doing. But that's not what the general people were doing. They were evangelizing. Now, that's what you have in the ESV. Again, credit where credit is due. The ESV gets this verse right uh, as well. 11.19, 11.20. What they were doing was not so much preaching the word, this time here is they were speaking the word. They were talking. In other words, the picture was they were just talking to other people. I think a suitable uh, synonym would be, although it's not the word for, for sharing the good news, uh, they, were, they, were, they were sharing the gospel. They were evangelizing. They were talking the word. They were speaking. You remember what I said uh, about that last time in chapter 8? They were gossiping the word. That's kind of a humorous way uh, to capture the point. It didn't have this official authorized uh, uh, nature that the preaching did here were just Christians going about sharing the gospel and the picture therefore we have is one of general evangelism as the church was spread abroad and as that was occurring the gospel reached 
Antioch. And something surprising happened there, uh, as, as Luke is eager to tell us. One of the things that I would notice here in speaking of evangelism and speaking of the church um, occupying her true station in the world, and, and this, is, this is something that the 21st century Christian, uh, he likes to read about in the history books. He doesn't like to think about. But it's persecution is good, not bad for the church. That is what we consistently see in Acts. That when the church is under fire, the church is growing. That when the church is being scattered abroad, people are being left uh, or, or they're being driven from their homes. The church is growing. It's an amazing picture. Persecution is not bad for the church, but good. I'll tell you what persecution is bad for, and it's bad for our comfort. It's bad for that. But from the standpoint of the church and her mission, it's good. Perhaps uh, I find myself wondering, and I, I think it's a fair way of putting it, and I've said this before, perhaps these people would not have gone about evangelizing in this way you know, they were comfortable where they were. Jesus had told the church at the very beginning before he went to the Father, I want you to evangelize Jerusalem and then I want you to go here and here and here. But do you see that it took persecution in order for the church to obey the Lord in this? It was good for them. It was good for their obedience. We might even say there was a degree of reluctance which they had. Until the trial came. But do you notice this as well? That the people as they were spread abroad were still focused on the Jews. That's what we have in verse uh, in verse 19. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And you say wait a second what's going on here? I thought that was settled. Here were people that were going off. From Jerusalem, and they were they were focused only on the Jews. It did not occur to the majority of them to evangelize the, the Gentiles. Not yet. Well, remember, if we have the, the timeline correct in our mind, these people were not there with Peter in Cornelius' home. They were still thinking as Peter did before he received his vision. And so actually when we read that, it shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's exactly what we would have expected. They were still, uh, we could say, Ignorant of what Peter realized, they were still uh, unaware of the truth that soon would spread throughout the church and, and revolutionize her whole outlook. However, saying that, there were happily some who did realize what Peter realized. How they realized it, we don't know, except, as I was saying last time, Peter really should have known it already. He didn't, but he should have. Well, here were some who did. Here were some who didn't need a vision in order to realize that the gospel wasn't only for Jews. It was also for Gentiles. They were able to grasp this important implication of the gospel that, well, it took Peter some time to grasp and to state like this. That we believe, chapter 15, verse 11, that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same, same manner as they. That is, we Jews will be saved even as they Gentiles. And so there were some of these Christians we read from Cyprus and Cyrene 
who when they had come to Antioch, you see, this is the surprising thing. Verse 19, Jews only, but verse 20, some of these people, they spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Again, let us be clear. It's more like speaking, talking about the Lord Jesus. They were sharing the gospel. That's the point. Do you remember who the Hellenists were? They were the ones with whom Stephen was disputing. Greeks. He was, they were reasoning uh, to them about Jesus. Now, one thing uh, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat. Stephen did speak to Hellenists, didn't he? <laughs> well, hold that thought one way or the other. Uh, at any rate, these Hellenists were Greek. And uh, one thing that might have created reluctance on the part of many was the thought that they would simply have no interest in this message. Whereas the Jews may, that was the thought, given that they were speaking of the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Well, here were people who took the chance, you might say. And happily, we read of a great number believing and the church being established in Antioch of both Greeks And Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And so here was the first actual church of mixed heritage, Jews and Gentiles. It was to become the base of Gentile operations, we will later see in the book of Acts. And a very fitting one, according to those who know the ancient history, though I confess I do not. I'm simply taking their word for it. But the next thing we see is that Barnabas is sent to Antioch. And we see once again, as we saw in the case of Samaria, and as we saw in the case of Cornelius' home, the interest that the Jerusalem church took in things happening elsewhere. There was from them a ministry of oversight, a follow-up. This was always their practice, and so they send... Barnabas, you ask, why didn't they send an apostle? Why didn't they send someone like Peter? Uh, Well, we don't know exactly. We just know that they did. And when Barnabas arrived in Antioch from Jerusalem, what we see is that he was encouraged. Barnabas was someone who was sent to encourage them, and that's what happens. But the first thing we see is that he was encouraged by them. And I just want to spend a moment thinking about that. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. Well, may I just notice here that it's often like this. Often we forget uh, how, much, uh, how much of a ministry the pew has to the pulpit. I didn't say that wrong. I said that right. How much of a ministry the pew has to the pulpit. It's very often the case that the minister himself is strengthened by the grace of God that he witnesses in the pew. It's very often the case that he finds that he is weak, but he's made strong by his fellow Christians as he comes to church. You see, he came to church expecting to bless them. That's what Barnabas was doing here. But what he found was actually that He was encouraged by them. It's often like this. I'm saying that from my own experience. I'm saying 
that I'm often like Barnabas and every minister is. The minister is someone who comes with a blessing, but he also comes looking for a blessing. And very often he's happy to say he found it. This is what uh, Paul says in, first, in, in Romans chapter 1. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. One of the ways that I like to put this is that the church is only as strong as the people in the pew, the people that occupy it. So often we ascribe uh, the strength of a church to its pulpit. And that's certainly true, but we can't stop there. We have to realize the importance of having solid, grace-filled, spirit-filled believers in the church. And that's exactly what happened here. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch, the grace of God was on display in the believers who were there. And it wasn't just he who was full of the spirit, but they. He witnessed the grace of God and he was glad and happy as the minister of God who comes to the church and is able to say that Sunday by Sunday. He came to encourage them and he was encouraged. Really, Luke is just describing something that all of us know. You see, you could make the same point from the standpoint of anyone who ever comes to church, at least a church worth coming to, a church in which the grace of God is at work. And that is that we don't know what we would do without our fellow believers. There's a real, well, there's a real sense in which we could not make it but for one another. There really is no substitute for living, grace-filled Christian fellowship. There's no way to be glad like Barnabas here. That's the importance of the church, just in this half verse. But on the other side, we see his ministry to them. He was glad, he was strengthened, and so he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. And so there was this mutual blessing. He came to preach to them and that's what he did. He came to impart a gift to them, but not without receiving this blessing first. But it was not enough for them to be saved and to leave them like that. Again, you ask the question, what is it we're doing as we come together on Sundays? Well, this is part of the picture. You see, when these people turned to the Lord and were saved, you don't it was not the thought of the church in Jerusalem just to leave them like that. Still, they needed to be encouraged that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. They should continue steadfastly to follow Jesus. Now, that is the message that every uh, new convert needs. He needs to be encouraged to carry on with, uh, with what he's begun. Not to give up too easily. Not to become discour- d- d- discouraged. That's the kind of encouragement he needs. Well, I would say that's what the new convert needs. But that's also what the aged Christian needs to hear as well, isn't it? We all need to be encouraged in this, in this way. We need to be strengthened from the pulpit to carry on. That with purpose of heart, we should continue with the Lord. This is why the Apostle Paul, after he established churches, both stayed with them for a while and often returned and wrote letters to them and sent others to them. It was always in order to strengthen them with this message. Well, it's so obvious, but let me say it anyways. We all need to be strengthened like this. We all need good preaching and teaching to build us up. Why? Because we're weak. We're not strong. We need to be made strong. How are we made strong? How is our faith made strong in particular? 
Well, we need the doctrines. We need teaching in that regard. We need doctrinal preaching. But equally, we need the exhortation. We need the encouragement, the admonition to press forward despite whatever discouragements we we face. The truth is, let me say again, that there isn't a one of us that could survive without it. We all need the strength and the grace uh, and, the, and the cheer, cheerful heart that is brought about by a fellow believer. But we also need to be encouraged and exhorted from the pulpit week by week. Here's the next thing we see. We see the value of good men. Luke says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Well, there isn't a single word that's wasted here by Luke. It seems very clear to me what he's doing. He's describing why things were as they were there. Luke describes the man. That is a common practice of him. He rarely speaks of a man's ministry without speaking of the man himself. If if you like to read Christian biography, that's the kind of thing you see all the time. It's a description not only of the man's ministry and the results of his ministry, the kinds of people that were converted and strengthened as a result, but so often it's a description of the life of the man. Don't you see that's what Luke is doing here? Well, in a sense, it's obvious why he was the right choice. I asked earlier, why didn't they send one of the apostles, one of the twelve? Well, it's because of the kind of man he was. He was a good man. That's what Luke tells us. And how glad are they who can say this of their ministers. By the grace of God, he's a good man, not a bad man. That's the first thing. And this was because he, like they that is the saints in Antioch, was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, just as we read of Stephen. Now, this reminds me, you're going to say, Pastor, a lot of things remind you of this. <laughs> That's because you can guess I'm, I'm doing a careful study of this once again. But this reminds me of the concerns of the new side men in the first great awakening. And one of the great concerns of the new side men, also in the second great awakening, was the importance of the kinds of men who occupy the office of minister. And they would say something like this, that the first and greatest requirement for the ministry is godliness. It's holiness. Now, I dare say that's not a message that's too common today. Perhaps I'm being unfair, but that's at least my experience. But it was the emphasis of these men. And I dare say they were like Luke. They were impressed with the character of a man who was good and who was godly and who was full of the Holy Spirit. And they would say that above everything else, every other requirement for the ministry A man may be full of learning, he may be full of gifts, but if he isn't godly, he's not fit for the ministry. This is the preeminent concern. And if he isn't godly, then for all the good his learning may have accomplished for him and for his people, it will not have the desired result. They would speak of the importance of, I'm quoting Ian Murray from Revival and Revivalism. Uh, 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 Witherspoon was the one who spoke of this. The importance of piety and of preaching from an experimental knowledge. Or you read uh, R.L. Dabney's uh, Evangelical Eloquence. You find him saying the same thing. Now that was closer to the second great awakening. But he was speaking of the cardinal requirement of godliness. A man, in other words, who is acquainted with the truths that he preaches. 
Whitfield would speak of a felt Christ, and he didn't mean so much that, that, that I'm making you feel it in your hearts. That, that's more secondary, but the fact the man himself was impressed in his heart by the truths that he preaches. Now, that's what I find here. That's what I find Luke telling us about Barnabas. Why was Barnabas the, the right man? It's because of the kind of man he was. He prevailed with the people with his message because of the kind of man he was. He was a man who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And what I'm saying is that this is what we need more than anything else in the OPC. This is the thing we must look for most as we consider uh, men and candidates for the ministry. Godliness above all. An experimental acquaintance with the truths that are preached. Godliness. Men who know their confessions. Men who know their Bibles. Yes. Men of ability who can preach. But equally, good men who are like Barnabas. And do you see what was the result? That's the next thing. 24b. And a great many people were added to the Lord. What was the result of such a ministry is that the church was strengthened. The church was blessed as a result. Now, I won't say this is automatic. I'll never say that about any of these things. And I'll always remind you that you can't force any of this. It's often the case, and and I think it's especially true today, that good men labor with no visible results. And so I can talk of some ministers uh, in, in verse 24a, but I can't quite make it to 24b, at least not yet. Yes, they, were, they are good men. They're full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And yet we don't see a great many people added to the Lord. It's not automatic. The Lord is sovereign. The Spirit blows where he wills. We could equally say that it's often the case, especially today, that bad men labor and seem to reap a harvest. Indeed, that's the tragedy of the American church today. But nevertheless, from the standpoint of history and of the church as she should be, let us see these two things as exceptional. And this as the norm, that when God supplies good men to labor in the church, we must expect results to follow. That should be the earnest expectation of the church. We should look for a harvest of souls. A church that's made strong. A great many people added to the Lord. Obviously, this is the Lord's doing. It wasn't done on the strength of of Barnabas. Only God can add souls to the church. Paul himself will speak of this. One man sows another waters, but God supplies the growth. But when God supplies good men to be ministers in the church... I'm saying that is precisely what we must expect in his own time. Well, there's even more to be said. There is the need for helpers. Verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. We might have thought everything was well and that he and they had everything they needed, but we would be wrong. You see, as strong as he was and stronger now by the church's ministry to him, still still he realized his need. He realized his inadequacy. He could not stand on his own. Uh, He was like Moses who needed his Aaron. And so we could say Barnabas needed his Saul and vice versa. For Paul, as he would later become, was not above the need either. No man is able to stand on his own, however strong. Well, the key, you see, is to find the right man. And so there was an element of strategy here. Saul was the right man. 
to help Barnabas, even as Barnabas was the right man to be sent to Antioch. Saul, why? Because he was called the apostle of the Gentiles. Of course, he was the man for the job. And together we see in verse 26 that they spent a long time in Antioch ministering there. Again, we we notice the kind of ministry it was. What were they doing in the church as they ministered there for a year? It was a ministry of teaching. So that so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. It's so simple, but that's exactly what the church needs. The church needs the teaching of the right men. You see, they had turned to the Lord. They were soundly converted. But you don't just leave a man like that. You've got to teach him. And these things take time. You don't learn everything all at once. But another thing we see is the value of Christian witness. Verse 26b. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, I don't know where the idea was started that this word Christian means little Christ. That is not what the word means. It means those who are of Christ, something like that. The idea is that these people were obviously followers of Jesus Christ. Well, we ask ourselves, what's a Christian? What did the first people mean when they coined that term? We see how the term was used at first. As I say, it was coined by others, not by the first Christians. It described this obvious quality or commitment exhibited by these Christian converts. Ah, these are the Christ people. Obviously so. And and this has a kind of obvious implication or application for the church today. And that is, uh, I wonder if they would say the same things of us. Would it be so obvious? Would they coin a phrase to describe our commitment to Jesus Christ we're the Christ people it's so obvious I hope that it I hope that it is well the next thing we see is that a prophecy is told there and so Barnabas wasn't the only one to come from Jerusalem and we're reminded in those days that it was a common thing for one to have the gift of prophecy even as Joel had predicted and Peter recounts that prediction in Acts chapter 2 verse 18 that people would see visions and they would speak The word of prophecy. The effect of the prophecy was that there would be a great famine. A great widespread famine. There's no indication that Jerusalem or Judea would be the center of the famine. Nevertheless, we see that the saints in Antioch determined to send relief to Jerusalem. They determined, as we read uh, in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The picture there is that as they gathered together, they were collecting money. To send to the saints in Jerusalem. Well, that's the idea here. They took up a collection and then they send relief to the saints in Judea. Which Saul and Barnabas brought back to them. Verse 30. And that ends uh, the account of what we read here. And by the way, that second trip uh, to Jerusalem is likely what Paul recounts in Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Well, there's several principles which are evident in this act. The first is that their faith was evident in their good works. We see why it was so easy for others to tell that these were Christian people. Because if you think in terms of Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10, it wasn't for them a matter of words. They didn't just say that they followed Christ, but that their works followed them. 
their commitment to Christ was a matter, not just of words, but of action. And so their faith was evident in their good works. The the second thing we see is the principle of giving itself, which we see again and again throughout the New Testament. Giving is, uh, it is part of what we do as we come together. It's what we call an element of worship. It's not optional. It's actually part of our practice as Christians, and it always was. What is the principle of giving? It's something that we need to be quite clear about. The principle is stated here like this. Each according to his ability. That's verse 29. Now, uh, if we go to verse 35 of chapter 4, this is how it said. Uh, it says, uh, to each as anyone had need. Each according to his ability, uh, his ability. To each according as he had need. We notice in this, no one was under compulsion. Each gave as he determined in his own heart to give. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, that's a little beyond what we read earlier. And so giving, as the apostle describes it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, as well as the way Luke describes it, is a grace. Giving is a grace. It is an act of faith. Verse 6 through 8 of Second Corinthians 9. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. It is an act of faith. In other words, we are trusting that when we give, we are not losers in the transactions, but we will in the transaction, but we will actually be winners by it. How do we know that? By faith. Now, I would come back to the formula and notice this. Listen to the formula again. It might have raised an eyebrow or two. Let me just raise your eyebrow again. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. I'm just synthesizing the scripture, the two places. Now, you might say, Pastor, you just quoted Karl Marx. No, I didn't. I quoted the Bible. I quoted the book of Acts. I took these two passages and I placed them together. And it was Karl Marx who took this idea and abused it so badly. Is it possible, let me ask you, that sometimes we are afraid to speak scripturally because bad men take the ideas and they use them for evil? Well, let us not be ashamed of the scriptural idea, the scriptural teaching. Look once more at the principle. There is nothing of the tyranny of communism here, the leveling of souls to death, as Solzhenitsyn said. What is rather described is how Christians are ready to meet the needs of those of their own household, you might say. The way these first Christians looked after one another. If one is in need and another is able to meet the need, let him do so. That's the idea. Not under compulsion, but only insofar as he is purposed in his own heart. Each man is free to do as he pleases. That's the idea here. I'm not telling you what to do, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. I'm simply setting forth the ideal and leaving it the ideal And I am leaving it to your faith to determine how much you will be pleased to give. And so let me read again what he says. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 15. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what has and not according to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by inequality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack and their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Do you see that he appeals to the example of the Lord himself? And that is an example we are meant to follow. He who was rich became poor for our sakes that we might become rich. And listen to me when I say that he was under no compulsion when he did this. He did so gladly. He did so freely. He did so willingly. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord and so I, 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 will, raise, I will be raised again. And so I take it up again. Do you see how willing, how glad he was to meet our need as only he could. And the apostle's point is this is the principle of giving. If we are in the same position, we ought to do the same. If we have the ability to relieve the need of a brother, well, just think of Jesus. Did he not meet our need in just the right way and just the right time? Who are we to refuse our brother? Don't think of Karl Marx, beloved. Think of Jesus Christ. And then you will understand what the apostle Paul is speaking of here, as well as Luke. Let me say this as well as a third principle. We have as well the communion of saints, and that really is the greatest thing that we see here. It's the thing that we're meant to see. In other words, there's a principle of solidarity here. What, what is happening? It's, it's the Gentiles taking a collection and giving it to Jews. You can't miss that. And what they're saying here is, is the gospel came to us from you, so we send relief to you. As, as, as an evidence of, of, what, uh, of what we believe we hold in common. And it's especially fitting that it should be so. For as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 15 verse 17. He says therefore. Oh, not 17 excuse me verse 27. It pleased them indeed that they are uh, their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partaking uh, partakers of their spiritual th- things, their duty is also to minister them to them in their material needs. And how evident it was that they understood this. Well, let me end by making uh, these two observations for the church. We read all of this and we say, at least I hope we're able to say, here's something for us. We're not just reading an account of history, but we see the church as she should be. And how, uh, how we would have her to be if only God would bless us in the same way. In other words, what I keep saying, I'll say again, I want to know what they knew. That's what, what, what occurs to me as I read Acts or as I read the history of the church, these seasons of blessings. I want to know what they knew. 
I know in part, but here are days of blessing that clearly surpass our own. And uh, the light of their witness shines more brightly. I cannot deny it. Well, let me make two points about it, and then I'll, I'll be done. There were two things that made the church then as she was. And the first is the presence of suffering. You ask, why was the church then as she was? So full of the Spirit, so full of grace, so ready to give sacrificially for the sake of other Christians they didn't even know. It's because she was a suffering church under fire. And this is what made her strong. But more importantly, it was the abundance of the Spirit in those days. Well, I won't say we should ever pray for persecution, but we should pray for strength. And you can imagine how God might answer that prayer. The answer is through trials. Indeed, for that reason, if you ever ask yourself, why is life so hard? Perhaps you have your answer. The Lord is making you stronger, even as he did them. And he's strengthening your witness as a Christian. But above and beyond that, I will say this, that we must always pray for the outpouring of the spirit upon the church. It ought to be a daily concern, a matter of daily prayer. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That is a present continuous imperative, as though he were saying, Always be being filled with the Spirit. And if you want to know what that looks like, he goes on to describe it in the next uh, few verses. Uh, But really, you've got to read the book of Acts. Here is a church that was always being filled with the spirit, which means a church that had come under his influence, a church that had come under his power, a church that had come under his holiness. And it is amazing to see what was possible for even a few Christians who were full of his power and his life. Let me just ask you this. When is the last time you prayed that the spirit would be poured out upon the church? Have you done so today? Is it a daily prayer for you? And how is it that we can ever hope as Christian people to experience the fullness of the spirit? As Paul uh, declares, is our daily duty and our daily concern. How if not by prayer, as they were doing in Acts chapter 1, and as they were doing throughout the book of Acts, what do we find them doing? We find them praying for the gift from on high. And so let us then agree, if we want to be a church like this, if we want to know what they knew, these seasons, these days of blessing, that we will pray as they did. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 422. And please stand, hymn 422.